Well, good morning, church. If you're watching online, uh, welcome. I'm so glad that you guys are here. If you're in person, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, before we get started, I want to talk to you a minute about um, Lent. It's not the stuff you have to clean out of your dryer. It, it's, Lent is, is a, a time where we give something up to get closer to God. That's the whole idea. Now, you know, and, and we try to give up something that we really like. Like, I, I'm thinking this year I'm going to give up sardines. I don't really eat sardines, but I was thinking about it. So, no, the whole idea is, is to give up something that you really enjoy. So one year I gave up chocolate, and then I realized that, you know, the, the day before Ash Wednesday is Fat Tuesday. And, and so if I was going to give up chocolate, I would eat as much as I could on Tuesday. That way on Wednesday, you have this really bad craving for chocolate. So anyway, so anyway, it's just a time where you, you can reflect and say, okay, I'm going to give up a food item, something I really like, and, and replace it with time with devotion to God. And, and you know, my wife and I, we were... Uh, for years, we, we would watch Jeopardy faithfully because we loved Jeopardy, even though we were pummeled by, by it every single, every single night. So we'd have to watch Wheel of Fortune to make ourselves feel better. But, but we gave up Jeopardy, and during that time, we, we uh, were able to uh, spend time praying, reading the Word, talking to the Lord. So I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to go ahead and take time and try to get closer to the Lord. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about something that will revolutionize your life if you decide to act on it. And that is, I want to talk to you about grace and guilt. Grace and guilt. And, and in 1904, there was a, a Russian physiologist named uh, Ivan Pavlov, or Ivan Pavlov, and, and he was doing some research, and, and in his research, he was doing conditioned response or conditioned reflex, and what he did is he had a group of dogs, and every time he was going to feed the dogs, he would ring a bell. Now, ringing a bell has nothing to do with eating, unless you live out on a farm. But then he would ring a bell, and then he would feed the dogs. And then, then he would ring a bell, and then he would feed the dogs. And after a while, the dogs got so used to being fed every time they heard a bell that when he would ring the bell, they would instantly begin to salivate. That's a conditioned response. Taking a, a stimulus or, that, that doesn't even belong to, to the subject and introducing it and making it a part of your life. Most of us live with conditioned responses and we don't even know it. My guess is if, if a, somebody's phone went off right now, we would have almost everybody looking for theirs. Because you know, when you hear that, that chime on that phone, you know it, it's, it's somebody calling and you want to see who it is. How many times does your phone go off and you just have to check it just because? When you go into the store, it used to be at Christmas time, now it's probably July this year, uh, you'll walk into the store and you'll hear Christmas music. 
And you say, why do stores put Christmas music on? I'm going to tell you why. Because they know that we associate Christmas music and with Christmas, and with Christmas, we are going to buy. And we're buying for people. Do you realize that when stores start playing Christmas music, the, the prices or the sales go up? You'll buy that one extra item. Why? Because we have been conditioned that when we hear the music, we start buying. And that's just a conditioned response. And I want to talk to you today about, about guilt. Guilt as a conditioned response. And if guilt is a conditioned response in your life, it will hinder you from living a life of victory and freedom in Jesus Christ. Now, guilt is not necessarily bad. Guilt, guilt is one of those things that, that we have in our life, and, it, and it's a, an emotional state. And it usually comes from one of two different things. Something that we have done that we consider wrong. How many times have you ever been in a heated discussion and then you said something that you thought, oh, I should not have said that. And you can't take the words back and you feel guilt. Or, or it comes from something that you did not do and you feel guilt. Guilt on its own is actually a good response. True guilt is healthy when it, when, it, when it compels us to make amends for something we did or something we did not do. Let me give you an example. When you came to Christ, you came to Christ, and I hope that you felt guilty. The Bible says godly sorrow, guilt, works, develops repentance, a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of attitude. I know when, when I was driving down the road and I looked over at the, out of the corner of my eye and saw a church and the presence of God came into my car and the Lord spoke to me and said, why aren't you serving me? I had a moment of guilt that flooded my life. And in a moment, I knew that everything that I had in my life that was wrong, that was keeping me from a relationship with God, that if I was to die, I was not in a right relationship with him. I felt regret. I felt remorse. I felt guilty. You remember that? But wasn't it great when you gave your life to the Lord and the guilt just washed away? See, guilt can be good. Guilt can be something that's good in our life, but false guilt, false guilt is a cancer that will destroy you from the inside out. The adversary wants you to connect, wants to connect guilt with a negative conditioned response in your life. He wants you to focus on your past failures. How many in here has never had a past failure? Broken promises, personal fears, individual inabilities, something you cannot do. The adversary wants to torment you. The adversary wants you to focus on the things you cannot do. He wants you to focus uh, and, and on the things that, that you have made mistakes on. He wants you to focus on all the negativity in your life. And the devil uses that guilt to lead us 
into a, a place where we lack trust in God. We begin to lack in God's forgiveness because we're just not good enough because he looks at us and says, look at all the times you've stumbled and fallen. Look at all the times that you've messed up. Look at all the people that you've hurt. Look at all the caustic words you have said that have destroyed people's lives. And, and he'll keep pummeling you and pummeling you and say, look at all the dreams and aspirations you had and now you're nowhere even close to succeeding and he'll try to get you to beat you down and try to discourage you where you'll look and say God loves people but he certainly doesn't love me or God's grace is sufficient for everybody else but it's just not there for me you'll begin to trust that God doesn't love you that God doesn't care for you that God doesn't forgive you that's where the devil wants you. That's where the devil desires to have you. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why? And the answer is really simple. The devil's motive is to keep you so focused on past failures and your own inabilities that you spend all of your efforts and energy and your attention on what you have done wrong. He wants you to look and say, you are not good enough. You are not able enough. You cannot achieve what God has said you can achieve. He wants you to focus on the negative stimulus in your life that keeps you down, that keeps you defeated, that keeps you, that keeps you weak and anemic spiritually. And there's a reason there's a reason why he wants you to do that. Because his goal is to get you to be a reactionary and not a revolutionary. He wants you to react to something negative in your life and not revolutionize your life and be victorious in Christ. Why? Because I'm going to tell you. I, I know you really want to know, so I'm going to tell you right now. He's afraid of you. Well, let me put it this way. 1 John 4, 4. He's afraid of what's in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. The adversary has seen firsthand what a child of God can do when they are fully persuaded that God's grace is enough, that his power is sufficient, and that, and that his leading of a life is victorious. He understands what one person can do when they totally devote their life to, to Christ and they can turn their world upside down for him. He knows what potential it lies inside of you and he is trying to get your eyes on the negative and never let you look at the positive things in your life. He wants you to be defeated. He wants you to be negative. He wants you to look and be, have a critical spirit. He never wants you to look ahead and say, I know who my Redeemer is. The Bible says the devil believes that there's a God and he trembles at his presence. And that same God which dwelled in Christ dwells in you. Think about that. 
Why does the devil put so much effort and so much energy to try to beat you down, to push you down, to pummel you, and and to get you to feel like you're worthless, that you're negative, that you can never accomplish anything in life, that you can never do enough spiritually, you can never love your family enough, you can never be enough, because he is afraid of you. Look what 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You know what that means? We don't go out and hit people. Sometimes you want to, but you don't. Our weapons are not carnal. They're not physical weapons. But let's see what, what Paul says. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of the strongholds of the enemy. They're mighty. Your weapons are mighty through God. Over here, they're not that mighty. But when you walk through the door and you enter into the presence of God, they're mighty and they can pull down in the spiritual realm the strongholds of the enemy. You and I alone, I don't care what what programs we have, I don't care what ministries we create, I don't care how good we are, I don't care how many times we're on the internet, I don't care how many times we're on TV, whatever we're doing, as long as we're over here, we're only going to have limited success. We're going to have shallow victories. But when we walk through into the presence of God and we take hold of those weapons which are mighty, which are through prayer and we begin to pray against the spiritual wickedness and darkness in our community and in our nation and in the world we we begin to pull down those strongholds and the presence of God is released that's why he doesn't want you Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I love that. You know, he was, he was in Corinth, and they had the Isthmian Games, which was a, a precursor to the Olympics. And so Paul was just talking about all the things he was seeing and about the wrestling and the fighting and all that. And he says, we wrestle, but we don't wrestle against people. You can't put somebody else in a full Nelson and say, accept Jesus Christ as your own, or I will choke you out. It just doesn't work that way. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. The devil is, a, is on your trail. The devil wants to defeat you. The devil wants to discourage you. The devil never wants you to walk into victory through in the presence of God. He never wants you to be able to, to know that when you've walked out of a prayer room that, that God has answered a prayer. He never wants you to feel the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit praying and surging through you. He never wants your faith to be so strong that when you walk into that prayer room, you can say, you know, if God is for me, who can be against me? He doesn't want you to do that, and he knows the way to keep you about walking into Christ and walking through into the Spirit is to keep you to focus on the negative things in your life. And here's the truth. All of us have disappointments. All of us have negative things in our life. All of us have done stupid things. 
That's a theological term that means dumb. I want to read out of Luke chapter 22. It's on the screen, so as you go through, uh, let's read this together. This is where Jesus is being taken. He says, Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into a house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Let's go on. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with him. Are you getting the story? Here's Jesus. He's already been in the garden. And, Jesus, and Peter said, I'll die with you. And, Peter, and the Lord said, Peter, before the rooster crows this morning, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times you will deny me. So let's go on. And a servant girl saw him sitting there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. Oh, don't you despise that type of person. He was there. I know it. And then this is what Peter's response was. He said, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Let's go on. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Second time. Let's go on. Third time. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean, because his speech gives him away. If you ever met somebody from Texas, you know they're from Texas. And if you met somebody from Galilee, you know they're from Galilee. So, let's go on. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. One of, the, one of the passages of Scripture says that he began to use profanity. He was angry. I just don't know him. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, the next, the greatest mistake he had ever made in his life. Let me ask you another question. What's the rooster in your life? What triggers that shrinking feeling in you of failure, of inadequacy, of just not being good enough? You do understand that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you day and night. He, he wants to condemn you. He wants... He goes to God and tries to condemn you. He, he tries to get you to do things. And then and his job is to bring that stimulus into your life that, that brings that negative response. And it doesn't matter what it is, if, whether it's an actual rooster crowing or whatever it is. If it's a song that you hear, if it's a, a phrase, if it's a statement, if it's a movie. Whatever it is that reminds you of that thing in your life, that rooster in your life that, that conjures up those negative images of what you did or where you did or what you didn't say or what you didn't do. The adversary is constantly trying to bring that into your life. He tries to take something that's a molehill and build it into a mountain. And he wants you to have that mountain that's insurmountable, that you can't go over and you can't go around and you can't go under. And he wants you to think that it's impossible for you to be victorious in God. But I want you to understand that he is a liar. He is the father of lies. And if we ever get to that place that we we walk into the very presence of God, that mountain becomes a molehill and that you can just step over. 
But his job is to defeat you. And I want to talk to you just briefly about, about a way that you can defeat him, about how you can leave that false guilt behind and walk boldly into the grace of God. First thing you need to do is you need to have a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Christ. I love that, that line. And Jesus looked at Peter. devil wants to keep you from looking at Jesus. He wants you to not have that relationship. I wonder, I wonder, what was Jesus' look? I told you so. Peter, you're a loser. I'm going to share with you in just a moment what I think that Jesus, his face was conveying. Think about in your own life. When is the last time that you saw Jesus face to face? Instead of worrying about all your problems and worrying about and trying to fix everything, when is the last time that you stopped you quieted your mind, you quieted your spirit, you quieted your fears, you quieted your anxiety, and you got into that prayer closet, that place where it's just you and God. And you begin to pray, and you see him, and he sees you. When you're open and honest... And say, God, here I am. If you want to be victorious and you want to walk in grace, the very first thing you have to do is see him. To look at him. You have to not only look at him, but when you do, you have to acknowledge your guilt before you can accept grace. You can't condone it. You can't, you can't put it over. You can't put it off on anybody else. This is what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. said, this is a true saying. Everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I was the worst of all of them. See, true guilt will lead us to repentance and then to the acceptance of grace. Paul understood his failure and dealt with true guilt. Paul knew he was a sinner. He knew he had, he had gone against God, and yet he acknowledged it before the Lord. The scripture says that King David was a man after God's own heart. And you say, well, how could that be? David messed up so many times. And yet every time, every time he messed up, he would look to God. And he acknowledged his transgressions and received forgiveness. See, we live in a generation today that embraces therapeutics over transformation. 
And I have nothing against therapeutics, but when it comes to the, the spiritual realm, that's where I draw the line. See, you can't, managing a disease is different than eliminating a disease. And when we begin to see ourselves as victims of sin and not perpetrators of sin, then we are no longer liable for our sin because we have a disease. We're just sinful people. And yet, sin is not a disease, but it's an immoral act against a divine, holy God. No one is going to be able to stand before God and say, I couldn't help it. I was a victim. The devil made me do it. See, but when we, when we realize this is the grace of God, when we realize the extent of our sinful nature, guilt will come. Just as Peter and the Bible says, when he saw Jesus, and Jesus saw him, when their eyes met, something welled up in Peter. And the Bible says, he went out and wept bitterly. He repented. He changed. And then after that, God used him uh, as a spokesperson, as the spokesperson for the church. So when we realize the extent of our own sinful nature, then and only then will we experience the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. There is nothing more important than seeing the Lord, seeing your condition with the Lord, being honest with him, asking him to forgive you, and allowing the grace of God to flood your life. Every single time see anything else if, if, we're, if we're approaching God and saying God you know how, how I am and you know these and, and you're looking at, at your life or you're looking at the events in your life as, as some kind of therapeutical uh, remedy and you're thinking well I, I just can't help myself anything else is cheap grace because many accept cheap grace because if you accept cheap grace, you don't have to see Jesus face to face. But Christ didn't offer cheap grace. The cross was costly. But the cross was not just so that we could have pardon for sin. It was so we could be forgiven, so that we could receive his spirit, that we could be ambassadors for Christ, that we could be victorious in him, that we no longer have to live under the bondage of sin, but we can be free in Christ. For whoever Christ has set free is really, truly free. That's why the devil doesn't want you to look at Christ. That's why he doesn't want you to look at him face to face, because he knows that in the face of Jesus... You're going to find healing and victory and blessing and grace and glory. He knows that, that, that Christ has defeated him, made an open triumph over him. And what that scripture simply means is he took the devil, paraded him through the street, put him down as, as, a, as a king would over, over somebody he has defeated, put his foot 
on his neck and everybody celebrated. And Paul was trying to give us this visual image that, that the devil has been paraded before us. He's been cast down and Christ has his foot on his neck and says he can no longer affect you when you look at me. I'm going to ask our praise team to come back. This, this, this costly grace, this grace that he has given us only comes when we, when we begin to look at Jesus. Let me go back to, to that question that I posed a little while ago. I wonder what Peter saw in the face of Christ. Would you stand with me? In John chapter 21, you can find it in verses 15 through 17. Jesus has already been crucified. He has risen from the grave, and he is showing himself alive to the, to the disciples. And this is the third time that he has shown himself alive to the disciples. And they've gone out fishing. And, it's, and the morning time is coming. They've been out fishing, and, and Jesus is standing on the shore, and they don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, have you caught any fish? And they said, no, we've been working all night. We don't have any fish. And Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side. And they did. And there were so many fish that they had to get help to bring them in. And John looks over and says, it's the Lord. It's like, duh. And Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And when the disciples get there, they have, there's already fish and bread. There's fish on the fire and, and there's bread. And they're sitting around talking. And Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter looks at him. The second time. And Jesus asked this one question. He said, Peter... Do you love me? And he asked Peter three times. You say, well, what did Peter see in the, in the face of Jesus at the, at the trial? He saw love. He saw forgiveness. He saw grace. And Jesus, sitting around that fire, eating fish and breaking bread, brings restoration to Peter because he didn't want a false stimulus. He didn't want a conditioned reflex. He didn't want Peter to look back at, at his failure every single time that rooster crowed. He wanted him to understand that though you may be down today, tomorrow you can be victorious. And Peter, here's what it really takes. You need to look at me and you need to understand that I love you and your love for me will overcome any failure you have ever had. Let me ask you today. Are you looking at the Lord? What do you see in his face? There's an old song that said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.
I wonder if we sing, as we sing this song, I wonder if we could just take time and let's look fully 